chapter 1, verses 13 to 23. It can be found on pages 1,122 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as up on the screen. This is God's word. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. The word of the Lord. Look at it as words from you, as revelatory about you and your ways and your story. And yet we're filled with doubts and worries, stresses, and lack of faith as we come into this room. We also come just aware of our own foibles, our own spoiled devotion, and our, um, often our rebellion against what maybe we know or is true or the right ways of life. We're a mess more of a mess than we care to admit, and your love through Jesus is a grace that floods into our lives, into our messy lives, despite us. We don't come in here today cleaning ourselves up, but we come declaring that you clean us up, that you have come down to us to bring us to you, because we're unable to get there ourselves. And we pray that this kind of grace, that your story exhibits to us over and over and over again, in the Bible, we pray that this grace would pierce into our distracted and stubborn minds in such a way that your grace may get into the cracks of our own mess and our brokenness, that we might be filled in a deeper way than we ever have before by what our hearts are truly chasing after but never finding anywhere else. Speak to us by your grace that our our lives may be changed in Jesus. Amen. 
So the question of the week last week was, is obedience a good thing? Obedience, it's kind of, a, kind of a, an older thing, right? It's, it's, it's becoming less and less of an acceptable thing to talk about, an acceptable way to talk. Obey. How are you doing it obeying? Obey me, right? People said, um, is it a good thing? People said, um, my mom says yes. Someone else said, depends on who or what you're obeying and the heart of your obedience. And someone else said, only if you're the one charged with the power, then it's a good thing. We don't quite know what to do with obedience, and um, it's become sensitive uh, uh, to talk about. Parents um, raising children often struggle um, now with... um, you know, forcing your will too much on your child. Perhaps you might, um, you know, you might crush your child's spirit, I've heard people say. But then on the other hand, I know as a parent of four, you know, there's other times where you're going, did I give a little too much slack here, too much freedom? Maybe I should have clamped down and said, obey me a little more in this circumstance. Obedience has been, basically we've switched to talking more about um, you know, follow your inner voice. Um, I like the, the commercial, the Sprite commercial back in the day, obey your thirst. You know, that's the sense of it, right? That's kind of what we're more comfortable with. Obey, but really just obey whatever's urge you're feeling from within. That's the only way we're comfortable talking about obey. Um, and yet, I think what we see the more we look at the Bible, the more we look at the New Testament and as these resurrection communities were trying to figure out what now, as it's sort of like Jesus' resurrection was like this master power switch, you know, those kind of have like a handle was like flipped up and this flood of new life is coming into your life and my life and the church. Um, okay, so now how to think about obedience. And my guess is from a lot of the things I see in the New Testament that people in that, those early ancient days, we might think of them in a different way from ourselves and imagine, oh, they probably just were, loved authority and said, oh, I'll do, you know, that's how it works. You obey the authority. I think they probably were a lot like us in our aversion to being told what to do, our aversion to putting our will on someone else because Almost every time I can think of in the New Testament, whether it's the book of Romans or Colossians or um, Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians, I think of these places where there's some kind of rules for living. And I realize that it's always tied very closely to, like the, the argument that's made is not, oh, but this is the list of rules, do it because it's the right way. But there's always this strong link to be who you are which is actually kind of what we're comfortable with today, right? you got to be you. But it's sort of this Christian way of your identity with that master power switch with the resurrection that has been flipped on. There's a new identity that's flooded your life. So be you. It's not so much, come on people, you've transformed into something because of a new list. It's a new identity. So just be you. Be yourself. Be who you now are. And so 1 Peter is not as much a a list of shoulds. It's a nuanced discussion of who you are. And so you see in the the section we just were reading, 
brings out, you'll see the, the connection in verse 14, you are obedient children. And then in verse 17, since you call on a father. And then as you move a little farther down into verse um, 23, you see, for you have been born again. So the, the whole passage that we're dealing with is framed by this identity of you are a new child, you have a father You've been born into this new family identity. And then this is what I think, once you see that, kind of that framework in this passage, it's kind of fun to see that what then the juxtaposition, the foil that's put in here, when it talks about in verse 18, for you know that it was not with imperishable things such as gold and silver that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, so if you take the last half of that, that sentence, the empty way of life handed down to you by your ancestors, another word for that would be forefathers, now you see kind of a foil that the, the rest of the world and the world we come from as we transition to being a Christian or as we grow into being a Christian, the rest of the world has kind of these forefathers and these voices of the culture and the ways of the culture that have been handed down. And it's saying that the Christian has sort of a new set of voices, a new kind of father. We are children of a new family. So I think that's pretty cool, that sort of juxtaposition of forefathers and um, your new father. And in the ancient world, what Peter is doing here is a little bit controversial when he's calling it so bluntly an empty way of life when the old ways, the ways of the forefathers was a very valued piece of philosophy of this day and age, of Peter's time. You know, what is older is better. And so he just outright calls the ways of the ancestors empty, an empty way of life. But then you see kind of the, the cool thing he does. He follows that up with, with um, because they value what's old. He says right after that, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. <laughs> you know, so we're... We value what's the oldest ways there are. Jesus goes further back than the oldest of the ways. So that family analogy, forefathers, the voices handed down of your culture. Christians have a new kind of, we're grappling with, we're trying to understand our new family and what the voices that replace those voices are. And then there's this other word that's dropped in there that really just comes to life for us as well in, in chapter, or in, in verse 17. Live out your time as foreigners here. Live out your time as foreigners. Foreigners. There's, um, there's a lot in the Bible about this theme of being like a, a foreigner or another word for it is a, a sojourner. And you saw the emphasis in that video of this tie, tying the life of the Christian to sort of metaphorically to the life of the ancient Israelites that they were a people of a new identity on a journey and kind of always passing through and never fully saying, I'm a citizen of this place of this world, but I'm, I'm kind of passing through. And so I'm just going to uh, read a couple snippets from a book called Saints as Citizens, A Guide to Public Responsibilities for Christians. It says, many statements in the New Testament remind believers that they are not of the world despite their sojourn in it. 
Jesus' teaching in John 16 and his prayer in the following chapter exemplify these scriptures. Paul's well-known exhortation to the church at Rome, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, strikes a similar note as do John's warnings to test the spirits and to discern which are worldly. These particular passages identify the world rather strongly with evil, Others speak to a prudent detachment, I like that, a prudent detachment from worldly affairs simply on account of the imminent return of Christ. Paul even urges at one point in 1 Corinthians, let those who have wives live as though they had none. You can dig deeper into that and well, what, what on earth did he mean by that? Right, but the, the, let me just read a little bit more. The sojourners possess the perspective of one whose stay is temporary. Who, who's, who, who lives in the middle of a culture but cannot make its mores his own, who may come to, to know that with every passing year that familiarity with a society is not the same as full membership and is never likely to make a satisfactory substitute of it. You get the sense from the Bible that to be a Christian and to begin to grow in being a Christian is to have a, a little bit of a hands-off, a little bit of a distance always. You might call it a foreignness, a growing sense of foreignness within whatever place and culture you live. And again, it doesn't come because you've been handed a weird set of religious rules. That's not, that's not the source of it, which is kind of the, the, on the popular level what people think of people who go to church. It's because you've been given a glorious new beginning, a new identity, a new belonging in a family, a love faucet that has been turned on and has just flooded your life. And you know, I mean, you and I both know that morality lists, they lack a, really a sort of a staying power. You're given a list of here's the right way to live. See how long that lasts. Just doing it for no other reason than someone said that this is the right way to be. This is the good way to be. Oh, sure, if you're certain, have a conviction in your life and maybe you've been in the dumps and bad things have happened and you want to clean your life up a little bit, you might have some temporary excitement to have a new list you follow, but eventually the excitement will die out. But planting your life in God's fertile soil of grace and the belonging in this new family, oh, that, that will... That will last. What, that is a power for your life to make you eventually more loving, as this passage ends on that note, right? So that you are sincere, uh, obeying the truth so that you are sincere, have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. That's where this is all driving. And throughout, throughout the Christian church, this is what, you know, this has been there all along. This is what was so puzzling in some ways about the Christian Church. Even early on in the second century, there is this letter written from one Christian to another person defending and explaining the Christian faith. It's called the Epistle to Diognetus, I think. I don't know how to say it. But some of the letter, some of, some of the portion is in your worship guide. There's a, there's a quote there, and I'm going to read that because this is how kind of Christians were described to someone who didn't quite get it. For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language, nor the customs which they observe. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, 
They share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their native country, and every land of their birth is a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. In the ancient world, it was um, a lot more common to dispense of babies born with defects. They have a common table, which is unusual. People of different backgrounds, cultures, common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their life. It's been said of Christians in the ancient days in the growth of the church that they defied and reversed two big things that were a part of the lives of their non-Christian neighbors, that in their finances, they began to give away money promiscuously because of the treasure that they had. They didn't need uh, vain and empty treasures anymore. And in their bedroom, they stopped giving themselves away promiscuously because they had true connection and they didn't need empty connections anymore. So this is the kind of reversal, the kind of distance that it means to begin to incorporate what it means now to be in this new family and have a new identity. There should always be something in the life of a Christian that expresses a little bit of arm's length, uh, set-apart-ness, foreignness. And in the pressure cooker of life, the idea is, as a Christian, you're going to react differently than you used to. In the pressure cooker of life, you're going to react differently than, hopefully, than people who don't call themselves a Christian. And so as you face situations in life, as you think about growing in your behavior, perhaps, in, in, in glorifying God more with your behavior, the idea is not remember what to do. You know, some people think, you know, I come to church to remember what I'm supposed to do. It's remember who you are. Remember who you are. A lot of people have the impression of the Bible that it's a restrictive rule book. And the more I get myself entangled or my life gets entangled into this business, the more it's going to squeeze every last drop of fun out of my life. <laughs> and I'm going to live in the straight jacket of religious rules. And I would say that's just a, you know, that's kind of a view from the outside or a, a complete misunderstanding of what anybody who's really found themselves in the family of God would say. I would say it's way more accurate, both from what you see in the Bible and in the lives of people who have seemed to have met the risen Jesus. Way more accurate to say it's not, it's not about like constriction. I think it's much more accurate to say it's about finally being set free. That there is a freedom now that comes from the absolute certainty of your belonging. Finally, I belong. Finally, I am loved. Finally, I am known. And I can stop chasing that in all the ways I have been chasing it. And it doesn't mean you switch like that. 
like some would say, I became a Christian and I gave up all these things and it was smooth sailing from then on. It's about remembering who you are. Over and over, we're in need. Just like this early churches with Peter, they didn't get it right away. They needed a letter written to them to remember who they are in the pressure cooker of life. We need it too. So the question, we just end with a simple question. Is there a growing foreignness to your life? Is it starting to show itself in some ways? Are you starting to see some, some new patches, um, some, some places in your life where this newness might start to blossom, where the, the sense of a little bit of cultural distance might start to exist? And you might start to be, as some people call it, in some ways, a resident alien in the world in which you live. Is it starting to show up? Is it starting to show up in how you live out your life as a student? Is it starting to show up maybe in, in being single and how you go about a very difficult challenge, usually when I talk to people who are single, of just being single and looking around and seeing people posting and sending out invitations because the ring has been you know, given and there's going to be a huge... Just being single in a world where it's so valued to have that partnership. How do, you, how, do you, how do you live differently as a single person? You know, is it starting to show up in being married? Is it show, starting to show up in how you parent? A, a little bit of distance in the way you, in this new family of God, the way you parent. The things that do or don't worry you or stress you out as you watch over the journey of your kids? Is it starting to show up in your career path, in your vocation? Is there a little bit of distance, a little bit of foreignness, and a new identity that's starting to show itself, or you're hoping will show itself? How about in your social life, how you hang out with your friends? Is there, some, is, is there starting to be a shift because of who you are in Christ? How do you use your free time differently as someone who now belongs and you know who you are in Christ? Let's pray together and hope that this starts to develop in our lives and in our church. Our gracious God, we thank you for a challenging um, and yet good word from 1 Peter. And though we may not be in the context they were of being literally losing their lives, literally losing their money, literally losing their social standing because of their faith, our lives nonetheless experience great hardships and we live in pressure cooker situations. And the challenge is exactly still the same. And so we pray that through your Holy Spirit, that the resurrection power of Jesus may spark new actions and joyful, free uh, behaviors in this community that exhibit a new identity and that are the, are, create a sort of argument for how you are true and how your resurrection is powerful that our lives would start to exhibit things that look strange and foreign to the rest of the world, that the worries that the world has are no longer our worries, that the values and things that the world chases are no longer the things we chase, that the insecurities and the self-doubt that the world is so filled with are starting to ebb and dissipate in our own lives as it's replaced by a confidence of belonging in your gracious family. We pray that you do this through your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen.